0: through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson. On FBI 94.5. Hello FBI radio listener, Joey Watson here. Yep, out of the box is this show. I don't care if you're in a shower or a car, this show is live midday 12 to 1 and of course podcast at your convenience. I sit down with one person each week and roll through the records from their life and the stories behind them. Today five-year-old me would have told you to get out of town because I'm sitting down with Murray Cook. For 20 years, Murray filled Australian televisions as the Red Wiggle. He played everywhere from regional New South Wales to New York's Madison Square Garden multiple times and became part of millions of childhoods. Since wrapping up, He's been busy playing with the DZ Death Rays, recording in the US with his band The Soul Movers and advocating for Australian music. So on your nostalgic YouTube binges in your ARIA Hall of Fame. And today... In the FBI radio studio, Murray, a very warm welcome to Out of the Box. I've got a a lot of muso mates, just like a lot of people here at FBI, and I was talking to one of them last night about the fact that you've now got the Wiggles franchise extended with a completely different lineup, which is a very unique experience for a musician. I mean, often bands live on without maybe one or two of the members, but actually seeing the whole thing reinvented,
1: what's that been like? it's been really great. I'm kind of really proud of the whole thing because it's something that we created, um, as, you know, just a, almost a hobby really. And then we took it somewhere and now we've been able to hand it on to someone else and to see that the concept still works with different people. And, and in some ways, bet like even more. So, you know, um, Emma, the new yellow wiggles, probably the most popular wiggle of all. Um, and you know, that's, that's been a really great thing to see. And it's funny. I go to, um, sometimes I'll go to a wiggle show and, uh, yeah, these days, and, and uh, I'll be walking through the audience, and all the parents are going, "Oh, look, look, it's Murray," and the kids are looking at me like, well, "Who's that?" <laughs> so it's it's kind of funny. Yeah.
0: Let's um let's go back a few decades. Let's go mm. back further than the nineties, mm. way w- much before the Wiggles were, were even yeah. an idea. Um, take me to Cowra. What, what's the town that you grew up in? Like? Yeah,
1: well, I um I was born in Cowra in New South Wales, and um uh, in nineteen sixty, so I'm getting on um and uh and we lived in that my dad was in the police and we we lived there till i was eight so 1968 and then we moved to orange and you know i had i had a great time as a little kid in cow it's you know a little country town my brother and i kind of just ran around the streets and stuff we had a lot of freedom and um but you know I, i guess it was wasn't really till i moved to orange that you know, I was a little bit older, and that's when I started getting into music and all that sort of stuff. And, and um, uh, so I kind of think of Orange as my hometown, really, even though I was born in Kara.
0: What what trade was your old man in? He was a, in the police. In the in the police, what did he do for uh, them? He was a detective. A um, detective. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in, is in, that as
1: intriguing as it sounds? Uh, or, probably or... not quite as intriguing <laughs> as it sounds.
0: What would he have to do? Uh,
1: well, in the in the um. In Kara, he was the only detective there. and So he had to go to every, every time there was a death, if there was a fatal accident or anything like that. So, you know, in those days there were lots of fatal accidents because, you know, the cars weren't as safe. And, uh, you know, if there were murders or anything like that, you know, serious, serious crimes he would have to investigate. And so he worked nearly all the time. I think in those days, I remember he worked out once that... um in four years, he worked five. He worked an extra year. And they didn't get paid overtime in those days either, so uh, he pretty much just gave them another year. Do you, but, think, um, do you think he carried the baggage of his job? Uh, look, I think he's the sort of personality who didn't so much. Um, uh, it, it, it gave him a fairly dark sense of humour, I think, and he looks at the world, um, not, in a, not in a negative way at all. He's a very positive guy. He's a really enthusiastic, sort of um, optimistic guy. and uh, And... I think he's just, he was the right personality for that sort of job. Yeah, he's he's quite elderly now, he's 85. Right. And long retired, but well, uh, I suppose you couldn't have gone further from the family trade if you tried. No, no some, not at
0: all in some no. way. Um how were you introduced to music as a kid?
1: Uh, really through television. Um yeah, we we had, we didn't have a record player at home when I was a young kid, but the radio was on a bit and then um yeah when we were little kids we did sort of mostly two things like apart from school we went outside and played or we watched TV you yeah, know there was no no other sort of no computer games or anything like that and uh, in the late 60s um, the monkeys TV show came on and the monkeys was kind of like a bit of a take off of the beatles but you yeah, know really funny and like just really appealed to me and I just I just latched onto this and I saw you know these guys playing guitars and stuff and just thought that was the coolest thing ever how, so really- how long
0: till you started on the guitar
1: uh, probably a few years after that, I think from there I then sort of got into the Beatles because this was still the late '60s, so the Beatles were still around and uh, were still together and, and um, still putting out records. And uh, my in Orange, my one of my buddies, um, Michael Payton, um, uh, had an old brother who who had like all these records, and we used to go to his house and listen to the records. So, and then I think I guess after that, I just you know I just got obsessed with the idea of guitar and and. Um, Talked my parents into buying me a guitar when I was about probably eleven or twelve, I think, and uh, and started having lessons and just got obsessed with it.
0: What about live music? Did uh, did bands ever make their way out to Orange? Anyone yeah, they known? did.
1: Yeah, um, the first live thing I think was a, actually a production of Jesus Christ Superstar in in, in Sydney. Um, we were visiting family and and uh, and that was you know, they had a full like rock band and everything and it was loud and the real was, rock and roll yeah, musical. yeah so that was um that was pretty cool and then I think um oh, listeners might not know this band but Sherbert came to Tyrone Sherbert was um Daryl well, Brathwaite's well, band of, of um, course yeah. of course Daryl Brathwaite so in day, yeah. and they were huge in the, in the 70s and, and they were kind of a teeny bopper band a, a bit you know they were a pop band but they were live they were really um, quite rocky and, and they were great and so and then yeah quite a few others came um, and uh, but the big one really, I think, that I look back at and, and think that was mind-blowing was ACDC. Um, they came in about, I was probably 15, yeah, I think they came in 1975, so with Bon Scott. Um, they'd been around for a f- just a few years, a couple of years, and um, they had a couple of hits, and um, it was around the time they did... Uh, uh, it was a bit before Long Way to the Top. It was kind of jailbreak, that kind of era. Um, and they were, they were just astonishing. They were, they were just, you know... They were just so great. Like they were so different to everyone else in a lot of ways. Just because, you know, the, Angus was doing his thing, jumping around, <laughs> playing the guitar, and Bon Scott was just an amazing frontman. He, um, and I just remember the the day they were playing. Um, they pl- it was just like an all ages show. That this most of these shows were um, at like a little hall, uh, or fairly big hall actually. called It was called the, the Amoco Center because it was behind the Amoco service station, which was a brand of petrol in those days, <laughs> and. Um, Bon Scott was walking down the main street of the town in the afternoon and he had probably 15 girls following him and he just had this big grin on his face like, Check me out. But he was, he was just cheeky and, and alarican and and like quintessential kind of Australian rock and roll singer.
0: It would be a disservice not to play ACDC now. What, what track should we play off the top, uh,
1: Well, this, this one actually came out a bit later um, than the period I saw them. But I did see them again in, um, in 1977 after I'd moved to Sydney. Um, uh, saw them at the, uh, the Haymarket. The, they had like, a big concert in the Haymarket. And... Um, that was very cool. So, that was probably about this era. So, uh, Let There Be Rock, I, I think, is pretty cool. <laughs>
0: A C D C and today it was brought into the show out of the box by Murray Cook of the Soul Movers. DZ Death Ray's feature and of course the red wiggle. Murray, what did uh what did the punk revolution offer in the in the late seventies?
1: Well, you know, a lot of the music was getting a bit sort of bloated, you know there were there were lots of great bands still around, you know, um, uh, but there was getting it was kinda of getting a bit um, virtuosic virtu- virtuosic and um, uh, and punk was like just a get back to basics um kind of back to the 60s what rock and roll was and um it took me a little while to kind of get into it um it, 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 for people who don't know it, this is, we're talking about like 1976 77 um the Sex Pistols you know the Ramones were around um and Australia kind of did embrace it pretty pretty quickly not 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 as much as the UK because you know it just changed the music scene totally in the uk the clash the damned all those kinds of bands and um some of my friends were into it um uh, triple j was double j at the time it had been going for a couple of years and they started playing the sex pistols and stuff there was a lot of sort of angst about that amongst some people they didn't some people didn't like it because they liked the more sort of prog stuff that they were playing um and I, I didn't totally get into it right from the start i was intrigued by it but um i guess um yeah some of my friends were like my friend mark who i um, who I was later in bands with, and I went to school with, he loved it right from the start. He was a big fan of the Ramones and the Sex Pistols and those bands. And um, but for me, I was kind of coming more from a pop background. So um, Blondie were kind of my my in. Then the first Blondie album is almost a punk album. It's it's pretty raw. It's it's not like punk like we know it today, you know. But but it was at the time it was um, pretty edgy and it was. But it was more like a a really um, rough. Roughly recorded girl group album.
0: Sure, but but did you? I mean, did you pick up the promise of punk and start uh, making music? Yes, I own? did. Yeah, I mean, and it was a call to arms yeah, for a the, lot of Australian. Musicians. Oh
1: yeah, absolutely. And and that one of the great things about it was that it um, it, it kind of meant you could you could play gigs, you could play in a band, even if you weren't you know you, you weren't Jimmy Page or someone like that. You weren't you didn't have to be like the greatest guitar player in the world. There were bands coming out, and it was a really great time, especially. Kind of from about seventy eight on, um, all the pubs started having bands. Like just your corner pub would have a band, and they might be terrible. And I was in a band, and we were pretty terrible when we first started. You know, we could play a little. Yeah, you know, we could play, but um, we weren't a great band.
0: Did you ever manage to crack through before the Wiggles? Was there anything that showed
1: promise? Uh, uh yeah, yeah. Well, as I was saying about my friend Mark, we we um we went to school together, and we started playing music together. This was in Sydney. By the time I'd moved to Sydney, and um, yeah, we had a band called the Transistors that played around in the early eighties and we you know, we got quite a lot of gigs. We we um did supports to some of the big bands like the Angels and um and, and you know, did some good gigs and then that kinda of morphed into another band called The Finger Guns. Um and Finger Guns uh did do okay. We did a couple of records. We had a um record record deal, we did a couple of singles for um R C A or B M G they became and uh but we yeah, we never hit never hit big <laughs> and and uh yeah, so after a while, I was working um, in the public service at the same time because um, you know I had to keep alive. <laughs> but uh, it was a, it was a great um, sort of learning curve and a great um, sort of training ground for for the future. A lot of what you know I later did in the Wiggles um, came from the fact that I was used to performing, and i I'd, I'd performed quite a bit.
0: right so some, somehow here around the the punk era, you fall into into education. And how did that happen? And why?
1: Yeah, it was kind of really uh, at the end of the eighties. Um, so I was already when I first left school, I, I went to uni and did just started a arts degree, which I didn't complete. And um, and then I just you know, was playing in bands and uh, had a job and and uh, and I guess the the finger guns. Did, put out their third single, I guess, and, you know, nothing really happened. And we'd kind of been plugging away at it for a while. And I think I kind of went, oh, well, you know, being in a band's probably not the thing for me. It's not going to be in my future. And um, so I looked around and thought, well, I'll, I don't want to stay in the ta- – I was working for the tax office. I didn't want to work for the tax office all my life. So I, um, I looked around to see what I might want to do. And, and um, uh, I thought I'd teach primary school. But then, when I looked at various courses, there was uh, uh, early childhood teaching really started to appeal. You could, with the degree, you could also teach primary or preschool or long daycare or you know all these different settings. And um, so I went, and um, it was also quite appealing because there were lots of girls in the course (laughs) (laughs) and not many guys. (laughs) So that that gave us some superficial appeal. But I really liked the idea of the course, and I liked um I, when i investigated it it, it you use a lot of music and art and and um that that kind of stuff for, you, for in in your teaching so that that really appealed and um so yeah and that's where i went met the guys who ended up being the wiggles
0: so let's before we carry on with this story mm. thrust in uh, some some blondie yeah um well, is there a story behind this one uh, a
1: little bit it was i think it's blondie was, the era just blondie was my kind of in, um in, in um, entry, sort of level into the, the punk and new wave scene. But also I, I um, at the end of the 70s, I, I won a, um, a golden ticket sort of prize on 2SM, which was the pop radio station at the time. And it meant I could go to every um, overseas concert, like every international concert Um for a year, and uh, Blondie, Blondie came out, and I, I may not have gone to see them otherwise, but I went to see, see them, and it was really—they were, they were pretty rough, but they were really exciting, and it was just—that—that uh, yeah, that kind of—I was hooked, and then I kind of got more into you know, all the others.
0: <laughs> Radio Blondie for you there, brought into Out of the Box box today by Murray Cook. Today we are rolling through the life and times and the records of who you may know as the Red Wiggle. Um, Murray, how did you first connect with Anthony, or perhaps better known to the listener as the Blue Wiggle, yeah. if, we, um, <laughs> if we want to use that? Uh,
1: so I was, at, um, I was at university, I'd done a year, and um, I, I had heard through other students that Anthony had actually done his first year a few years before that but then The Cockroaches his band in the 80s uh, had a pretty big hit and uh, so they went out on, on the road fairly seriously and um, so he wasn't there when I got there but then he got sick of touring and uh, kind of ironically considering how much we do it in the, in the future but um, he got sick of touring and uh, didn't really want to do it um, and he's, he was still in The Cockroaches for a little while but he came back and we so we started second year together and I... We knew a lot of people in common. I didn't. I had never met him, um, but we'd done a lot of the same things too. He'd been in bands in the eighties, or oh, in his band, the Cockroaches, in the eighties, and um, uh, so we knew a lot of the same people, and you know, we'd had similar experiences. So we kind of um, uh, gravitated together, um, and we used to play music, uh, you know, at, at uni and take guitars and stuff like that, and we st- started busking a bit and uh, just playing together. And it was really after we'd finished studying that. Um, uh, it was his idea to, to do an album of music for kids, and we thought it was just going to be a one-off. He he was kind of inter- quite interested in early childhood music, and um, but probably slightly arrogantly, we, we thought we could do better than what was out there because we'd learned a lot about the way children think and we'd worked a lot with children. So history probably vindicated yeah, yeah, that arrogance. Yeah, yes, that's true.
0: <laughs> so how long did it take to get those songs into the studio? Uh,
1: well, I guess we we finished. I think uh, our last year was nineteen ninety studying and so we were teaching in uh, 91, 92 uh, but yeah, sort of the beginning of 91 we pretty much straight away started recording stuff we took a few months I think to um, to get them going and by that stage also Greg who was the yellow eagle, um, had started the same course, the early childhood course as well but he was quite a lot younger than us and so when we were in third year he just started first year so he was still studying, we were recording um, and so we did this album, and we, you know, we had no, um, well, we had plans to release it, but we had no, um, we didn't have a record deal or anything like that. But can, uh, can we can we go to the studio there? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh,
0: how, uh, what what was the what was the process? How how different was recording the first? Uh, had you come up with the name The Wiggles? yet? Yeah? were you already... uh, I don't
1: think so. Not when we were recording. No, because so, we were still working out if it was in a group that was ongoing. It, it, at first, it was kind of like a collective. There were there were a few, you know there were a few of it. it was kind of Anthony and Greg and me and another guy named Philip who worked at the university uh who's kind of a classically trained musician and uh we started recording and then um we we each sort of wrote a few songs and brought them and then we did a few songs existing songs and um i think we used drum, drum machines and stuff and i think and Anthony asked Jeff to come in cuz Jeff could sort of program um you know some synths and um drum machines and stuff like that just rang him up and jeff was painting his house at this time and and anthony phoned him because anthony had been in the in the cockroaches with jeff and he phoned jeff and said oh can you come down and do some recording just go oh yeah i suppose so yeah how long is it going to take and anthony said, "Oh, no, a couple of hours <laughs> and then you know ended up he was in it for 20 years but um uh, <laughs> so we yeah we did these different things i i wrote um we had a song called "Get Ready to Wiggle" that Anthony's brother had written, and um, that Greg and Anthony wrote Rocker by Your Bear," and we did that. And um, I wrote the first Dorothy the Dinosaur song with Anthony, with um, music from Anthony's brother and John, who wrote the cockroaches stuff. Um, and so it was yeah, done a bit sort of piecemeal. We did a few things. Well, I think we tried just recording it at home to start with, and then we went into a studio and Anthony paid for it, and and uh, uh, and, it, and eventually we had something we were quite happy with, and. Um, the cockroaches' manager, um, Jeremy Fabini, was still around on the scene, and and uh, he said he'd take it to the ABC for us because the ABC were really the only ones seriously releasing children's music, um, and they they had it for a few months before they uh, said, "Yeah, we'll put it out." And and they, at the time they said, "Oh, if you sell like three thousand copies, that's that's really good for a kids' record." And all uh, that record sold a lot more like over many years, but uh, it ended up selling like seventy thousand or something. But
0: where was the debut
1: show? Uh, I, I can't really remember. I know we did a few. At, uh actually, was there a big
0: decision? Was was there a lot of discussion between? Okay, we got this record. It's doing alright. Yeah. Why don't we see what this? Yeah, how this works there was. Live?
1: Yeah, and uh, I think by the time we had the record ready to go with the ABC, we had to you know they said all oh, well, it's a group so you have got to have a name and we came up with the name and it came from this song get ready to wiggle but it's also that idea of um you know the kids kind of wiggle when they they dance and we also knew that if we called the wiggles it was pretty clear you know we weren't a heavy metal band or <laughs> are you sure <laughs> it was pretty clear what we were um yeah i think we just said "I'll." Oh, everything we did especially on the early years we we talked about but it was a bit like oh yeah let's give that a go yeah we let's do a few shows maybe at some preschools and so we we had lots of friends who worked in preschools and i think we it might be the rainbow the rainbow preschool at kujie uh no not Coogee ranwick um i think that might have been our first first show i can't really remember much about it but you know we were, we were feeling our way a bit but because we were teachers and we were used to kids we were you know we kind of knew how to talk to the to the the kids and it was small you know small groups to start with um and then, yeah, we just did more of them. And then ABC Music um, put on a few bigger shows where they had several different kids' acts and we did them. And I think then then we realised after we did a few of those that um, most people seemed to be coming to see us. This was like the end of 92, I guess, so the album had been out. I think we might have even done the second album at this stage. And then we, at the end of 92, we kind of just said to each other, well, let's let's start... Let's try doing this as a full time thing. We'll chuck our jobs in, and, and um, we had a different manager by this stage, and he started getting us shows, and we started touring, and, um, and, and we we said let's give it a year, and uh, so at the end of that was supposed to be at the end of '93, we were just going to kind of get together again and say, well, what do you want to do you want to keep doing it or not? And, but we never had that meeting. No, <laughs> it was it, quite clear. It, it was, never happened. It was it was doing. It was really gradual though. It got bigger very gradually for a long time. It was people with kids knew who we were, but no one else did. Then numb, yeah. Then it sort of started to seep out into the general public.
0: How did the U.S. happen? It's a question asked by many
1: Australian yeah. musicians. How do you crack oh, yeah. the U.S. market? Look again. You know, we treated everything as an adventure, and and um, we just we just say, oh, let's give it a go. Let's just see what, what happens. Um, with with America, we uh, we were on the Disney Channel in Australia, and they had a, they ran a competition that you could win a uh, trip to. Disneyland uh, in LA and see us play. So they'd, they'd lined it up with Disneyland that we'd play there. Um, we were un- totally unknown in America at this point. And um, so we thought, well, we're going to be there. Let's get a few um, sort of people in the business to come on and look at us and see if anyone wants to take us on. And um, we had a f- – it was mainly video companies. So the, the company that did Barney, um, the purple dinosaur, if, yeah, if uh, people are aware of Barney. Absolutely. Um, and they were called Lyric – and they came along and um, they were quite taken by it. And, and uh, you know, some of the other companies said, oh, we don't really know how what we do with you, <laughs> you know, these four guys from Australia. Um, but, yeah, Lyric uh, actually, I think, tested some of the videos with audiences as well and they they thought, yeah, this will go all right. But, uh, you know, again, it was then what do you do? Um, so we started going to, to the States. Barney had a big touring show. Um, that used to do arenas in, in the States, you know, to fairly big audiences, like 5,000 seaters. And so at one point we were going over and we were just playing four songs in the intermission. And um, again, you know, the, people went to see that show, but we started getting people coming just to see our four songs and then leaving. Uh, so there's a, a bit of that. And then it's the, incredible. The big key, though, was we got on the Disney Channel in America. Um, so Lyric um, sold our show to the... To the Disney Channel,
0: and what did that mean for the sort of audiences
1: that you could oh, start to pull? It went from us doing well, like we did a little theatre tour around 2001, um, which was kind of our last run that we did before the Disney Channel kicked in, and we were we were playing to like thousand people, um, so it was all right. Like we, we were starting to do okay just from word of mouth and and um, you know doing a couple of years of doing um, shopping centers and the Barney shows, and and uh, then. When the Disney Channel took us on, they were playing us five times a day, I think, and um, that's when we went, like, it just went nuts. The next tour we were playing, like, Madison Square Garden and stuff like that and, and playing our own arena shows. And, you know, we, we were travelling around with, you know, three tour buses and three semi-trailers and it was like big rock show. It was funny. <laughs> it, was, it, was quite, it was probably quicker. But, again, you know, it was gradual at the start and then when it of did course, take off, it really of took off. Were you caught up?
0: with the rich and famous was there was there a certain amount of glamour and the fame that come out i mean selling out madison square garden it's like the wiggles and kevin hart
1: (laughs) yeah yeah well you know we had um we had uh lots of people coming to see us lots of famous people um i think uh the kind of the first or the last run before madison square garden i guess we did the beacon which is a um, Theatre in in New York, and we had Jerry Seinfeld and, and uh, Robert De Niro at the same show with yeah you know, with their kids, obviously. But um, and um, that was pretty wild. Oh wait, <laughs> so, so you're, you're performing it, and then you yeah, met yeah. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What well, yeah, they
0: yeah. they just come through and knock on the dressing yeah,
1: room. Yeah, oh, look, they can. They those guys, you know, don't just go and buy tickets. They usually get in touch with the promoters, and you know, they said, "Oh yeah, can we bring our kids to meet the Wiggles?" And so yeah, so they did. Yeah. Jerry Seinfeld yeah, yeah, and yeah, Robert well, I've De, De Niro. Met Jerry Seinfeld a few times. Yeah. <laughs> but that was no, like the first not, one oh yeah, it was, yeah, it was pretty mind-blowing At the same time Yeah, and we could see them They are at the same show too Did so. they know each other? I don't think so, no, no. Actually, I don't think we met them at the, I, think, I think Robert De Niro came before the show And then Jerry came after the show So they, yeah, they weren't in the same room together But they were when, when the show was on We could see them both <laughs> But God, um, were there
0: any others that came later on? Were there any that were particularly memorable? I mean, that yeah, you, yeah. You say that so casually now. Isn't yeah, it I it's do. Part I of think the I, process. Just because
1: I've told the story quite a bit, I guess. No, but. no. Of um, <laughs> yeah, we had like Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Matthew Broderick, who were a couple. Um, who else did we have that was big? We had people like um, uh, James Hetfield from Metallica. That was pretty wild. <laughs> we had a few rock rockers. We had um, Mick Fleetwood from Fleetwood Mac. Uh, came. Um, we actually did some recording with um, John Fogarty from Credence Clearwater. Um, we did, recorded three, uh, a couple of songs with him a bit later, and uh, yeah, so we had quite a few of those kind of people.
0: <laughs> you ask um, any musician, and um, uh, they'll say that touring is a double-edged sword. It also has its demands mm. as well as its glamour and its glory. Yeah. Did you find that even in the sort of genre that you were dealing with?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I, I mean, there's. In our in our genre, there's probably not a lot of glamour. Um, even though we met those those kind of people, like we weren't going to parties or anything like that. We were just doing the shows and then moving on. It was pretty workmanlike in a lot of ways. But yeah, there were some there were some downsides. Uh, the, I mean, the biggest downside is if you have family, you're away from your family a lot, and that's that's one of the things I, I struggled with. Um, and then we did have a, in America we had um, we had some stalkers, um, which is weird, but <laughs> it happened. Uh, you know, like kind of mostly mums, um, yeah. So a lot of them with obviously mental problems. Um, but yeah, for a while we um, we used to check into hotels under under fake names because we otherwise we'd have people trying to find us and stuff. So.
0: It's a really it's a it's bizarre to get your head around. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's totally whole... bizarre.
1: Only in America that only really happened in America. Sure, yeah.
0: sure. Yeah. But the, just the 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 level of the fame, but also that this sort of fame was just so unbelievably. Unique,
1: Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's, it's hard to know what to compare it to. But, I mean, we were, in a lot of ways, too, we were fortunate because we didn't have that kind of paparazzi kind of thing. We didn't have, you know, you could go out and people would talk to you if they recognised you, but uh, you didn't have people waiting for you, you know, to take photos and stuff. So. Look, it's not the Wiggles
0: we're going to play right now, but another uh, iconic um, 90s Australian group. Yeah. UMI, why, why are we playing them?
1: Uh, I, I like them right from the start. The first times I saw them, and yeah, you know, I saw them lots of times over the years, and and uh, um, uh, I've I mean, over the years I've got to know them, and, and um, uh, um, and they're really, they're they're just good guys, but I've, I just admire them. But it's funny because I think of them as still as a young band, even though they've been around for like twenty years, and, and uh, oh, and Davey's pretty young, but um, uh, but also I had the great um a great experience of of playing with them Um, they did a big they did a show at the Vic on the Park uh, New Year's Eve I think it's about New Year's Day rather I think it was about four or five years ago and uh, they they were getting all their friends who were in bands to come and do a song with them and uh, they got in contact with me and said hey come along and and uh, and play Lust for Life, the Iggy Pop song. Oh. And uh, so, so I learnt that and, and uh, went, went along. When I turned up, they they I saw their set list and I saw it just straight after. Mine was um, Born to Run, the Springsteen song. And I went, oh, I know that one too. Can I stay on for that? And they go, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> so I got to play two songs with them. And they're just a great band, you know. like It was really great having that rhythm section behind you too. They just roar. They really know what they're doing. So uh, great fun. So, But, you know, Tim's a great songwriter, I think. I think, you know, a little underrated maybe, um, but... Uh, Um, I've always loved this song, lots of people love this song I think he's written some real
0: Classic Sydney group. It's Murray, Croo- Murray Cook, that group being the Wiggles. He's with me on Out of the Box today. Murray, what, what made you think it was time to call it quits,
1: 20 years on the road? Yeah, I think a lot of it had to do with family, as I was mentioning before. My son was... Um, I have two kids. Um, my daughter, had, I think, left school by this stage, but um, my son was kind of coming up to doing the HSC. I felt like I hadn't really been around enough for him and I think he just needed a bit more support um at school and and uh um in retrospect maybe we should have just said let's take a few months off but um uh it just sort of seemed like the right time also Jeff had had some a few health issues um he'd had a pacemaker put in Jeff's quite a bit oh not quite a bit but he's he's older than us (laughs) he's um so Jeff's in his mid-60s now um and he'd had a pacemaker put in. He was having a bit of back trouble. And he'd been saying for a while he wasn't sure how much longer he could do it. And he kind of said, you know, I, I think I might um, call it quits. Um, and so it just seemed like a good point to for me to go as well. So it was a, a few things. For a long time after I left, I, I was oh, – well, for a long time, for months after I left and maybe a year after I left, I, I kind of second-guessed myself a bit. I wasn't sure that I'd made the right decision. Um because I did, I did miss it. Sure,
0: um, I kind did, of institutionalized by the road once you get into that rhythm. Yeah, that's
1: true. Yeah, there's a little bit of that, and it's also the buzz you get from the audience, and and the the audience we have or the had, um, and the, the new Wiggles still have um, uh, a fantastic. You get so much energy from them. They're they're really fresh, and um, you know um, they. They're not jaded in any, any way at all. You know, if playing with to adults, sometimes you've got to convince them to, to really get into it. But kids, if they like what you're doing, they're just instant. They're just. A
0: renewed audience.
1: Yeah. Well, that's the other thing, too. They keep, you know, new ones keep coming. Along. <laughs> but so I missed that. I, I still miss that. I still miss doing the shows. They were great fun. But, um, you know, it was, I, I know now it was, it was the right decision. Um, I, I'm sort of much happier now. And, and uh, you know, 20 years is a pretty good run.
0: Tell me about your group, the Soul Movers. That's your main musical outlet now. Yeah, it is. Yeah.
1: Well, when I first left the Wiggles, I I pretty much just decided to say yes to everything. If if people asked me to do, you know, appear here or you know, um, or join their band or play with their band. So for a while, I was playing in about six bands, (laughs) which was getting a little out of hand. But I I whittled it back. But then, um, the Soul Movers were a band that. I wasn't really aware of, but they had been around before I joined, and um, they'd been around about two thousand and seven or something like that. Um, Lizzie, the singer, Lizzie McKen- McKenzie, Lizzie Mac, um, and uh, Dennis Tech, who's the guitar player from Radio Birdman, were a couple, and they they started the band, um, and uh, they recorded an album quite quickly and did some um, some touring and played in Spain, and then Lizzie and Dennis um, broke up, and so the band stopped stopped playing. And then I came across their album somewhere and and uh, and started playing it and I was just blown away by Lizzie's voice and uh, and then I found out that she wrote most of the songs as well and I, so I contacted I I kind of knew her vaguely and I got in touch with her and and um and said I'd really love to do some playing with you and, and she said oh well, why don't you come along we're we're having a bit of a jam and the guitar player that we've been playing with has gone overseas and that, like it just happened that 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 week that that happened uh so i went along and and we did some playing and and um uh and then the more i got into the soul movers album i I said well let's let's do this as the soul movers let's get a different lineup together but do it as the soul movers and uh we'll we'll play those songs from the first album and write some more and and uh that was about four years ago and uh so we that's what we did and we've had a few lineup changes but um uh, yeah, so we did an album called Testify that came out the year before last, and uh, that was that was pretty good. We we're kind of feeling our way a bit. Then a new band in a lot of ways.
0: So how how does this group from the NOS end up recording in the US with the great Gene Christmas?
1: Yeah, well we um uh, we went to um, we got on South by Southwest on one of the showcases at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, which is the um, uh, the big sort of um, trade. A music, uh, music conference. Yeah, the yeah. music conference. And uh, so Sounds Australia put us on one of their showcases, which was really great. And, and uh, um, so we did a, did a show in Austin, Texas. And then um, we went, just had a road trip and um, wanted to, to have a look at some of the studios. Um, I, I knew Muscle Shoals was, wasn't far from Memphis, so we drove over to Memphis and... Um, for people who don't know about Muscle Shoals, there's a really great documentary, um, just called Muscle Shoals Sound, I think, or, um, and Muscle Shoals is this little area in Alabama. It's, it's four smallish towns, uh, and they call the whole area Muscle Shoals. And there was a studio there in the early '60s, which is still going, called Fame, and and uh, Aretha Franklin did her first um, number one single there. They recorded Wilson Pickett, all the, all these other guys. There was a, the house band would call the Swampers, and um they, they're mentioned in "Sweet, Alab- Sweet Home Alabama," the Lynyrd Skynyrd song, mm. um, and then they moved on and they set up their own studio called Muscle Shoal Sound. So we, we we went and visited Muscle Shoal Sound. We visited Fame and just had a look around. And when we were um, at Muscle Shoals Sound, Lizzie was standing at the back the, the back door because the studio was actually closed. But the woman there said, "Oh no, sorry, we can't show you through because someone's recording there." And uh, so we were standing at the back. Lizzie was standing at the back, and this guy came out and they started talking and. She I was still in the car and she she brought him over and, and uh um he and she said he had he had grandkids and he knew the wiggles and so she introduced him and then she said, Tell tell him who who you've played with <laughs> and he's an older guy, he was in his seventies and he said, Uh yeah, I played on um Suspicious Minds and, and uh In the Ghetto by Elvis oh and my um, goodness. Uh, Dusty in Memphis, he played on um Son of a preacher man, all this stuff. And I'm going. Oh my god, it's Gene Chrisman, <laughs> and uh, and we're saying, well, what do you? What? He said, oh, I'm recording here with Dan Alback, and, um, and, and he said, come <laughs> in and meet him from the Black Keys. He said, come in to meet him. So we go in there, and then there's some of the swambers are in there as well, and we'd like our minds just blown, blown at this stage. And we got some photos, and Dan Alback actually said to us, "So are you thinking of coming here to record?" And Lizzie and I just looked at each other, like, "Well, we weren't, but why don't we investigate?" And it just. Uh over about a year, we just kind of put the trip together and, and uh, uh we were originally just going to record at Muscle Shoal sound, but then we just expanded and we ended up recording in about seven different studios and, and with some of the swampers with them um, we didn't actually end up with Gene Chrisman because he was on tour with Dan Auerbach. um so we ended, but we ended up with uh david hood and, and Spooner Oldham, who a lot of people will know as you know really great they played on Aretha records and everything Wilson Pickett yeah you know, just. So it was a really, really amazing experience. Well, May, I'm not sure if this is a Muscle Shoals
0: record, but we've got Patti Smith next. Free money. This is for a long career in music.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, Patti Smith's a New York girl, of course, um, New York woman. And um, I, uh, again, I, you know, I, I knew Patti Smith's music in the '70s and '80s, and, and always enjoyed it, but wasn't like a massive fan. Um, but she was doing uh, a few years ago. She was doing some shows for the sort of anniversary of her first album, Horses, which is kind of her classic. And uh, she was doing it when, when I was in L.A. And, and uh, so I got a ticket, went along and saw it. And um, it just blew me away. She's still got most of the band that she had in the 70s. Um, uh, the guitar player is the same guy. And um, and she's in her early 70s now. But she was so much energy and passion and, and commitment. And so for someone like me who's, who is an older performer... Um, it was a real uh, sort of template um, for what you can do You're Like still performing like that but with real dignity and, and she's since brought the show to Australia I saw it in Australia and she did it at Blues Fest as well And I saw that one as well And she's actually coming back for Blues Fest next year I, I, I saw it today so, um, uh, And this is like just yeah, a killer song
2: I could sleep Find a ticket Win a lottery Scoop the pearls Up from the sea Cash them in and buy you All the things you need Every night before I press my head See those dollar bills cause swirling in my bed I know they're stolen But I don't feel bad I take that money By you things you never a jet plane babe get on a higher plane to a jet stream and take you through the stratosphere and check out the planet then and take you down deep
0: Classic Patti Smith, Smith track there, free money of her first album. Just announced, yet coming to Australia again for Blues Fest next year. Um, far from her first Blues Fest, far from her first trip to Australia. Today brought into FBI Radio by Murray Cook. The Red Wiggle is here for just a few moments longer. Murray, we've kind of touched on this throughout, but uh, I, have, I have been thinking, what what was it that, Made the wiggles so effective. What, do you ever think about that? Why was it luck? Was it something about the products? What?
1: Uh, no, I think it's more than that. I, um, I'm a fairly analytical person, so I've actually looked at it quite a bit. And Anthony and I talk about it. Well, there it you too. go.
0: Here's the hot take.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think a big part of it is is the um, the training we had as, as teachers. Um, and early childhood's a bit different to other, like say, primary teaching or uh, or some other sorts of teaching where it's more where it's curriculum-based. Uh, early childhood teaching is, they call it child-centred, so you observe the ch- children and you work out where they are in their stage of development and you tailor it to that. Now, you can't do that in, in the Wiggles because you don't know all the, the kids. You can when you're teaching. Um, but we took that principle where everything's about the child. We um, we did a lot of child development when we were at university, so that's child psychology, about the way children think. Um, they're centred thinkers, which means they just like center on one thing they're egocentric um, so they think the world's revolving around them, not in a bad way, not not like being egotistical. It's just that they see everything from their own point of view. They have trouble taking someone else's point of view. So a lot of the things we did, um, things like wearing the colours was to be easily easily identified. So and so it it stayed the same all the time. Also they could identify us without knowing our names. Things like that. We had challenges in the music. Things like, um, can you point your fingers in, do you, do the twist? Kids love being challenged. Things even things like wake up Jeff. Uh, it's great having situations where children have the power over adults they love that things where we just fall over they love slapstick humor um especially if it happens to adults because it's you know they always see adults as like being really capable so if they see them doing stuff that's not capable uh we always talk really directly to them that's this kind of egocentric thing so on when we did tv and video always talked down the barrel um you know we always talked to them as if we we're just talking to one child. Uh, we didn't get them up on stage because if you get one kid up on stage, everyone else says, "Why aren't I, Why aren't I up there?" So, so in lots of things we do, there's teaching strategies in there um, when you're teaching at early childhood, um, in early childhood, and with older kids, um, modelling is a really good strategy where you don't actually explain what you're doing; you just start doing it, and kids will emulate you. So, in a lot of our songs, we just do actions. We didn't actually explain them or anything. Mashed potato, then, mashed potato, all that stuff, comes yeah. to mind. Yeah. yeah, kids. so the kids will do it. So I think a lot of those things, because we knew what we're doing and then, you know, of course as you do it more and more you get better at it. Um, do, you, do you think much about
0: how uh, the consumption of content is changing. I think particularly about my nieces and nephews and while they're very well aware of the Wiggles, mm. a lot of the stuff that they consume is directly from YouTube. They have an enormous amount of control over what they consume. And yeah. Some of the stuff is very strange. Uh, unpacking videos are yeah, a thing right. now. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, it's just people un- unwrapping. Yeah, no, I've seen, I've seen uh, some yeah. of yeah. um, Look, we are that aware part?
1: of it and YouTube is something that we've... We use a lot. The Wiggles use a lot.
0: But what about you personally? I mean, are you even concerned with the way things are changing?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I am up to a point. Um, I think, um, you know, when when my kids were little, we were very um, strict about screen time, how much time. I, I, I do worry sometimes that kids um, spend too much time with iPads and phones and stuff. Um, not that there's anything inherently wrong with those things, but they're not maybe doing other things or just having time where they're just thinking or or just playing um in certain circumstances, I think that's why that actually um, preschool programs are actually really good for kids because sometimes parents are busy and if they're, they're um, you know it, and it's easy to just give the kid the iPad while you're doing something else uh, and you know we did it with kids with TV um, but I think things like actually kids being in in preschool is great because they're, they're designed to to develop them in lots of different ways so there's you know dramatic play and there's physical play and there's fine motor stuff and and um uh so I think that's a really positive thing I, I think it's worrying but I think it's um not out of hand I think I think it's something that can be manageable and as long as parents like keep talking to their kids and um you know get them to do things other than just Watching things on the iPad, but you know, again, as I said, you know, when I was a kid, I watched lots of TV, but we still seem to manage.
0: Well, that's a good note to take <laughs> us back because I figure that we should uh, finish where we started, yeah. back in Central New South Wales. What what can we play out with, Murray? What, what traction? Well, we use here? Uh,
1: there's a guy who was a very big influence on me when I was growing up, and his his name's Colin Newham, and um, he he was kind of pretty well known in the music scene in Orange and there was a bit of a music scene. It was mostly, it was covers mostly but um, there was a really strong, strangely the brass, the local brass band was like the real um, hotbed of great musicians because they, you know, guys would play or people would play brass but they would also play other things and Colin played everything but um, towards the end of the 70s. Uh, just sort of when I was leaving Orange um, and I was like quite good friends with Colin by this stage. He was a fair bit older than us but um, we, I used to do different musical things. Like Our school put on Godspell as a musical and I played in the band and Colin, Colin kind of ran the band. So he's a real mentor in a way. Um, so so he's quite important to me in that sense. Um, and then towards the end of the 70s um, a band from Dubbo came across to Orange. Um, they weren't called The Reels then but... Um, a, they were called Native Son or something. Anyway, their key, they decided to move to Sydney. Their keyboard player left. Colin joined the band. They came to Sydney. Uh, and, you know, it took a little while to get going, but they got a record deal and they had um, a couple of hits. And But um, they were just really quite um, uh, kind of groundbreaking. They were using synthesizers before everyone else. And they, In some ways, they were, they were the, their own worst enemy because just as they were starting to hit having success in one form, they would change totally and become something else. But uh, really, really inspiring. And this song uh, is written by the singer Dave, Dave Mason who wrote the songs and it um, it's actually was named by, the, by APRA as one of the um, top ten um, greatest Australian songs of all time. Cosimato stream by the Reels
0: so with that of course as every week would like to thank my producers Bree Jones and Nicole DiPaolo who did a heck of a lot of of research for this episode and Murray Cook thank you so much thanks Joey pleasure for being my guest today love won't
3: annihilate it builds you up you've had enough then won't let you be fame alleviate Hardy knocks at your door gives you the score then won't set you free and just when you say no more, a hand is for a key, oh stream hatred It builds you up till you've had enough then won't let you be Faye Olivier Hardy Knocks at your door gives you the scar, then won't set you free Just when you say no more a hand is for a key Oh I never wanted to be a quasi dream. Shall I make the ring, must I please find another?
2: podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.